There's a lot of confusion today about spiritual and eternal things. This is particularly seen in the idea of salvation. If you were to ask multiple people how to be saved, you would likely get multiple answers. For instance, if you were to ask an atheist, he will say there is no God and there is no need to be saved. If you were to ask a moralist, he would say, be a good person, do good for others, and you'll be saved. Ask a religionist and he will say, do what your religion tells you, and you will be saved. Ask a legalist and he will say, keep this set of rules, and you'll be saved. If you were to ask a man named Paul, who was once a moralist, a religionist, and a legalist, he will say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Next week is our friend day service, and to encourage us to, to pray for the service, to invite people within our sphere of influence to the service, and then pray some more. I want to take time today and make it crystal clear that Jesus saves To do this, I'm going to ask and answer two important questions that I pray will renew our confidence in the saving power of Jesus. Open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. That is the only verse we are looking at today. It's on page 923. If you have a pew Bible, when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 says, Therefore, He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. The title of the message this morning is Jesus Saves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And Lord, we, we want so much for Your will to be done in our lives. We want to see souls saved and lives changed in our community and through our church. So Father, today work in our midst and renew in our hearts a, a certainty to the fact that Jesus saves. Let us understand what it means that He saves to the uttermost and that those who come to Him will be saved in this way. Father, today let Your Holy Spirit help us to lay aside the cares of this life that we may have brought in and give us time to just be focused upon You and upon Your Word, to listen to Your Spirit, give us ears to hear and a heart to obey. Father, let Your Holy Spirit and Your Word work together to bring change into our lives. Father, as we look at our lives in light of Your Word, we know that we are not all that we are supposed to be, all that we are saved to be, but God, we know that You are at work in us, and God, You will work for us and through us to accomplish Your will. Help us today to see this process be at work in our lives. Show us anything that would hinder us from being Your people devoted to doing Your will. And God, help us to, to be willing to lay that aside, to seek You above all else. Fill me today with Your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech that I could speak Your words and Your ways for Your glory. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. This was initially meant to be a two-week series uh, leading up to Friend Day, but I got the dates wrong, so I had to do both messages today. Uh, And this verse is the one that really I wanted us to be the key, because I like the phrase, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. What What a great phrase. And from that phrase... The truth I want us to understand is that Jesus can completely and perfectly save anyone. Jesus can completely and perfectly save anyone. Now, to to drive this point home, I want to ask and answer two questions that I think we, we have to be settled in our mind. 
so that we can be confident that Jesus can completely and perfectly save anyone. The first question is, how does Jesus save? And the idea of how that I want us to explore today is not so much in the way that Jesus saves, but the quality of the salvation that Jesus brings. How thoroughly does Jesus save? How, how completely does Jesus save? Now, the inspired author says that, that Jesus saves to the uttermost. But what exactly does that mean? And so I looked at the Amplified Bible, and here's what it has to say. Therefore, He is able to save to the uttermost, completely, perfectly, finally, and for all time and eternity. Oh, I love that. That is beautiful. That is, that is how Jesus saves people. He saves them completely and perfectly and finally for all time and eternity. So the answer to how does Jesus save is that Jesus completely saves. Right? That when people are saved, they're not partially saved. They're sort of saved. They're all the way saved. They, they are finally and eternally saved. They, they are perfectly saved. But what does it mean that Jesus saves completely? Well, first it means that Jesus completely saves from the punishment of sin. The Bible makes it clear that all have sinned, fallen short of God's glorious standard. And God's glorious standard is best seen in the Ten Commandments. And if we had time, we could go to Exodus 20, or we could throw them up on the screen, and we would look at each of the Ten Commandments. And as we looked at each of the Ten Commandments, and we talked about what they mean, the spirit of the law and the letter of the law, what we would have to conclude is that we have all sinned. And really, everybody we know has sinned. That the Bible is right when it says that all have sinned. Now, the idea of sin is that there is a boundary that we have crossed. Right? That there is a standard that we have violated. And, and in a lot of ways, you could look at it and say that there is a king... We have rebelled against. That's God is the king. That's why he gets to set the standard of the Ten Commandments. His, his moral law. And every person that has ever violated even one part of his moral law, they have rebelled against that king. They have said to the king, You shall not rule over my life. You will not tell me how to live and what to do. I will be my own king. Well, there are consequences for such actions. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Now, the death that we get by rebelling against God is not merely physical death. It's what the Bible calls spiritual death or the second death. In Revelation 21, it calls it the second death when people whose names are not found in the Lamb's book of life are cast into the lake of fire. But where it talks about that the smoke of their torments will rise forever and ever. The horrors of hell. The horrors of hell demonstrate to us the great consequence of rebelling against the king of all the world. That is the consequence. That is the wage that is earned for sin. And every person in here has earned that wage. And every person you know has earned that wage. And every person you know is by their nature a child of wrath headed towards the judgment of God. 
People are not naturally headed to heaven unless they do something bad. People are naturally headed to hell unless a change is made. And Jesus is the one who makes that change. And when someone turns to Jesus, He completely saves them from the punishment for sin. The Bible says there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The wages of sin is terrible. The wages of sin is real. But the wages of sin can be escaped through Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1 is a verse that for us as believers we must take to heart. No condemnation. I just want you to think about that. When we believe in Jesus Christ, when we turn to Him, the condemnation for all of our sins is taken away. We, we are no longer under the judgment and the punishment of sin. And what, what we have to get is this, is, this is the way it is for believers, right? There is no condemnation. A believer in Jesus Christ will never be judged as a sinner. Right? There is no one in hell today that lived their life believing in Jesus Christ. Right? There will be no one in hell in the future who lived their lives believing in Jesus Christ because Jesus takes away our condemnation. Now, does that mean that we no longer sin? Does that mean that as believers, no condemnation means there's no sin, there's no struggle, there's perfection in our lives? No. Oh, it does not. We will wrestle against the world, the flesh, and the devil as long as we live on this earth. As long as we are alive, our sinful nature will push back against doing the will of God. And that struggle will always be there. And sometimes, bless God, we'll win the struggle. And we'll do what we're supposed to do. We'll follow the Spirit. But sometimes we won't. Sometimes we'll get in the flesh and we'll act in anger. We'll share a gossip story. We'll look with lust. Tell a lie. Sometimes we'll do what we ought not do. Here's the question we have to wrestle with. Does that failure, that sin, that sin, let's not call it a mistake, let's just be blunt, that, that sin, that rebellion, even for believers, that's rebellion. Does that rebellion move a believer in Jesus Christ from a state of no condemnation to condemnation? Are we condemned as believers every time we sin? And the no condemnation part only comes after we ask God to forgive us. The answer is no. There is no condemnation for believers in Jesus Christ. Believers are forever free from the condemnation. This isn't something that will come in the future when we're perfect because there is therefore now, at this moment... In your life, there, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation for you. Take that to heart. Let that give you confidence in your salvation. Let that give you confidence in your relationship with Jesus to know that you are not saved and lost, saved and lost, saved and lost. 
But you do not walk a tightrope over the fires of hell. And if you take one wrong step, you careen into hell for all of eternity. Our salvation is much greater than that. God's grace is much greater than that. In Christ, there's no condemnation. And as much as that needs to give us confidence in our salvation, this also gives us confidence as we seek to reach out to other people. Because we know people who have made mistakes, who've sinned, they've rebelled against God. Some may have even gloried in their rebellion. They may have even joked about, oh, I guess I'm going to hell for doing this. They may have just, I mean, arrogantly sinned against God. But if they believe, there is no condemnation for them in Christ Jesus. Jesus doesn't partially save them. He doesn't sort of save them. He doesn't even mostly save them. He completely saves them from the punishment of sin. So as you pray about the service next week, as you pray about who to invite, as you invite people, and as you pray some more, you pray and you invite confidently that Jesus completely saves from the punishment of sin. That no matter where they've been or what they've done or the life they live, there can be no condemnation for them if they will turn to Jesus Christ. Not only does Jesus save from the punishment of sin, but Jesus completely saved from the power of sin. We struggle in this life with our sinful nature. We are tempted and we are tormented and we are drawn away by our own desires at times. And as believers, one of the things that we have allowed to influence our thoughts is a a poor, pitiful me salvation. We have believed that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are poor and powerless. That we are tossed about by our sinful urges, and there's nothing that we can do. We, we can't overcome. There's, there's just too much that, that assails us, and we cannot possibly live consistent victory. But that's really not what the Bible says. Here's what the Bible says. It says, Likewise you also reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin, but alive to God, In Christ Jesus our Lord. Now the idea of of reckon ourselves dead to sin. It is that we, we, we understand that sin is no longer our master. Now as unbelievers, the Bible is clear that unbelievers are enslaved by their sinful nature. They are enslaved by sin and their lustful desires. But as believers, we, we are dead to sin. That is what Jesus said. We are dead to it. And being dead to it, Part of what that means is we aren't enslaved by it. It doesn't have to control us. Right? And he goes on and he says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it and it's lost. Now, that therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Doesn't that seem to imply that, that we can not let sin reign in our mortal body? I mean, why would, would God tell us to do something that can't be done? Why would the Bible say, don't let sin reign in your mortal body, when we don't have any choice but to let sin reign in our mortal body? The idea here, and in the very last verse, is that we are slaves to whom we present ourselves to. See, as believers, 
We have been freed from slavery to sin. But the temptation is still there. The spirit and the flesh are pulling at us in our life. The flesh is pulling us to sin and to do what we want to do and, and, and just rebel against God. And the Spirit is pulling us to do what God wants us to do. And the one that wins is the one that we submit to. And as believers, we are able to submit to the Spirit and do what we're supposed to do. It is possible for us not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. It is possible not to judge it is possible not to lust. It is possible not to cuss, not to lie, not to gossip. It is possible to live self-controlled, devoted, and pure, and a holy life. This is possible. Is it easy? Not in my life it's not. But it is possible. Jesus has not just changed our eternal destiny. He has changed our ability to live in this life, in this life, it is entirely possible that we can be free from slavery to sin. We do not have to live that way any longer. And if we do, as believers, it is always because we chose to. Now, for us as believers, this should be encouraging. But we have to believe what the Bible says. Now, we have to believe that that is really possible. I mean, do we really believe that we can not let sin reign in our mortal bodies? Do we really believe that we can surrender ourselves to God and to righteousness rather than sin and to death? Do we really believe that we can make that decision? If not, we need to choose to believe the Bible rather than the devil's lies. Because the devil is the one that wants us to, to believe we can't. Not God. God has consistently said in the New Testament that we can. Whom the Son sets free is what? Free indeed. Does free indeed mean slavery to sin? Gosh, I wouldn't think so. That seems to not be free indeed. You have to believe that this is true, that we can. And then when we believe we can... Begin to rely on the Spirit and rely on God to, to help us. And, and there's encouragement in knowing I don't have to be a slave to my sinful nature. But what's also encouraging is as we seek to help others. And, and again, when we are inviting people next week and throughout, when we invite people to church and we share the gospel with them, we are helping them. They are slaves to sin. They are headed towards the punishment for sin. We are helping them overcome that. We are helping them find the one, the one and only hope they have at being freed and saved from that. So as we try to help people, then we can do it confidently knowing that Jesus can make such a change in their lives that they don't have to be slaves to their sinful nature anymore. That regardless of the life they've lived and the decisions they've made and the way that the, the, just the life in general, that Jesus can change that. That He can bring someone from being a slave to sin to a slave of righteousness. He can take someone who is guilty and done all manner of bad things and turn them into someone who lives for Him and lives a pure and a holy life. He can do that. So as you pray about the service next week, and as you pray about who to invite, and as you pray some more, you do so confident 
that Jesus can save them from being enslaved by their sinful nature and He can set them free indeed. That is how Jesus saves. But the question, another question is, who does Jesus save in this way? Who is it that can experience this kind of salvation? Can Jesus completely save Muslims? Can Jesus completely save a homosexual? Can Jesus completely save someone who has come from a bad family? Can Jesus completely save someone from another culture? Can Jesus completely save someone of another color? Who exactly can Jesus completely save? Well, the inspired author tells us that he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Basically, he's able to save everyone who believes in him. And that's the answer to the question. Jesus saves all who believe And when we, it's easy to say Jesus saves all who believe, but I want to show you some of the all who believe that the Bible shows us Jesus saving. Right? For instance, Jesus saves sinners. By sinners, I mean people who are living lives of willful rebellion against God. These are people who may well know what they're doing. And may well not care what they're doing. They may understand the idea of righteousness, but are not concerned. And we, we probably know people like this. We know people who are enslaved to their sin and are okay with that. We know people who are so enslaved to their sin that we, we might even wonder, is it possible... For them to be saved. I mean, could someone who has lived like that for so long, is it possible that they really could ever turn to Jesus and be saved? Well, someone can come from a family and, and we can look and we've, we may know families that, that the whole family, forever as far back as you can go, they've all lived in rebellion against God. They've, they've never had any concern for it and say, that nobody in that family has ever cared about Jesus. I just don't think there'll be any changes now. And I think it's easy to give up on people like that. But when we're tempted to give up on people, we need to remember Scripture. Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And what I like about Paul is how specific he is at times. Because if Paul were to just say, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. What most people would do is interpret that as meaning other people. Right? Because I make mistakes. You're the one that lives in sin. I'm not perfect. You're the one that really needs Jesus. Right? And so, if Paul just said the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, we would say, that means Jeff, but not me. Paul gives us what the unrighteous are. Right? Don't be deceived, right? Fornicators and adulterers make the list. Fornication, sex outside the bonds of marriage. Adultery, sex outside the bonds of marriage. With fornication comes with it the idea of not only being an active participant, but watching it. 
Uh, there were live sex shows that you could go see in Corinth. So it carried with it the idea for our culture, for us, not only in actively sex outside of marriage, but pornography. Watching pornography is a sin. And those who do that will have no part in the kingdom of God. Nor idolaters. Now, idolaters, we tend to narrowly make that people who bow before an image. That is idolatry. And for sure, that is idolatry. But when you read Scripture, there's more to idolatry than bowing before Baal. Right? For, for instance, in Scripture, there's what I call mental idolatry. Mental idolatry is creating an image of God that is not accurate. Right? So, Scripture says God is holy and expects us to be holy. Be holy for I am holy. A mental idolater says, well, that doesn't really mean we're supposed to be holy. Right? The world has changed and, and fornication and things like that. They're not really sins anymore. God has changed and it's not that way. Well, we haven't changed God or His standard. What we've done is created an idol. Right? So, an idol can be just an image of God that's not the Bible's image of God. Now, think about Aaron when he made the golden calf. When Aaron made the golden calf, he didn't say, bow down before the cow god. He said, behold, O Israel, your God who has brought you out of slavery. This cow is Yahweh. Idolatry. But there's also material idolatry. And that is where we put something or someone ahead of God. Where we say, I know that God has said not to, but... But my spouse or my girlfriend or my boyfriend or my friend or my children, so I'm going to do this anyway. Right? Anytime we give a person or a place or a thing equal or greater devotion than we give to God, we have made that an idol. And what's difficult about that is those sorts of idols are rarely bad things. The problem in most people's lives isn't that they have bad things as far as idolatry, it's that they take good things and they make them evil things as they let them become ultimate things. Anytime someone or something other than God is ultimate in our lives, it's idolatry. And idolaters will have no part in the kingdom of heaven. Homosexuals nor sodomites. The Bible uses two different words uh, to describe the same idea. One in the King James is translated as effeminate. And it kind of meant, basically, a guy who dresses like a girl. The other one is just the word for what we would call a homosexual. And regardless of the culture's stance, it's still a sin. And those who commit such things have no part in the kingdom of God. Thieves, people who take things that don't belong to them. Covetous. Right? Covetous is a, a great desire for something we do not have. And the Bible calls that idolatry too because the, the acquisition of this thing becomes ultimate in our lives. And when we're covetous, the problem with covetousness is that it can't be satisfied. Right? There's always more cool toys. There's always more money to be made. There's always more. We're never satisfied once we even get what we think is ultimate. Or extortioners. Just uh, use other people and force them to give you stuff for whether you do through physical violence or through you know something about them, what we might call a blackmailer or a reviler. And a reviler is someone who abuses people with their words. Not their, they more or less violently assault you with their words. And Paul says that these people have no part in the kingdom of God. They will not inherit the kingdom. They're not going to heaven. Now most of those 
what we would call big things. I mean, these, most of those aren't your socially acceptable sins. Some are, but by and large, those are, we would say, well, that's, that's really bad. And we look at folks living like that, it would be easy to say, now those folks, they ain't ever getting saved. I mean, they are too, too all in in that sin. They are never coming around. Except look at what it goes on to say. And such were some of you. In the Corinthian church, there were people who at one time were fornicators and adulterers. In the Corinthian church, there were people who at one time were idolaters, who were homosexuals, who were extortioners, revilers, drunkards, and covetous. And then something happened. They met Jesus. And because of Jesus, they were, they were washed, they were sanctified, and they were justified. In the name of Jesus, by the Spirit of our God. Jesus completely saved them. It's lifelong sinners. And, and man, let's not underestimate the lifelong part of that. As Corinthians, they had been raised to believe in our culture, a lot of those things aren't acceptable. In their culture, that was, that was all normal and acceptable by basically everybody. The weird person wasn't the one saying that these things were okay. The weird person was Paul saying those things were wrong. They had been indoctrinated all of their lives by thinking all of that was acceptable and good and a part of what it meant to just enjoy life. And Jesus completely Save them out of a life of sin. He saved them out of a, a mindset that said this sin was okay and, and changed them so completely. Now again, for us as believers, man, it doesn't matter where we've gone or what we've done, Jesus completely saves us. Our sin... There's no barrier to His grace and His goodness and His ability to save. But as we invite and we try to help, it does not matter what they've done. It does not matter the life they've lived. Jesus can save them. Regardless of the sin they are headlong into that they love and they are convinced is okay. There is no one beyond the grasp of Jesus Christ. Jesus saves sinners. Mark it down. But Jesus also saves the religious. You know, back in the, the olden days, back in the olden days, when immigrants came to America, they, they adopted our culture, our language. Often they adopted the primary religion, of America, which was Christianity. But those days are gone. They don't do that anymore. Now, when immigrants come to our country, many times they, they retain their customs. And they retain their identity. And a part of what they often retain is their religion. And so what we find in most communities that have a high number of immigrants is that there are all manner of religions and spiritualities within our communities. And the people that are in these religions, they are highly indoctrinated. At the very least, they believe their religion is right, just like we do. 
They likely believe their religion is the only one that's right. Just like that's what we believe. And not only are the, the people who believe this, the, the immigrants that have come, but, but most religions are evangelistic just like we are. So there are the immigrants that brought their religion and the converts that have gone to it. And a new convert, a new convert is usually pretty stubborn about their religion if they really believe it. So we, we look at our, our world, our community. There's a, a wide variety of religions in Guyman, Oklahoma. And it's easy for us to look at all of the religions in our community and those that are, that are involved in these other religions, which the Bible says are false religions, and say, there's just no way to reach them. I mean, they have been raised from birth to believe this. There's no way they... They can be saved. Or, or we can determine they are the enemy. Right? That we, we look at these other religions, these other spiritualities, and we determine, gosh, they're evil. They're the problem. Both of those are false ideas. Certainly, people involved in other spiritualities and other religions are going to be difficult to reach, but, but it's not impossible. And, and we have to remember what Paul says in Ephesians that we, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Right? These people, they're not the enemy. And there is one passage that I like that, that refutes both of those ideas very clearly. First is it says, but if our gospel is veiled. right? So in other words, if someone doesn't see the need for Jesus Christ. If they hear the gospel, maybe they understand it, but they just say, that's not for me. It's veiled to them. But notice who it's veiled to. It is veiled to those who are perishing. And let's just stop and camp out at perishing. Perishing. Second death. Judgment of God. People involved in other religions are not okay. But if every religion was a path to God, we would have no right whatsoever to invade and try to bring Christ to them. It would be like trying to convert a, a Southern Baptist. There's just no, no sense doing something so silly. But every religion doesn't lead to God. People who don't see their need for Jesus that the gospel describes, those people, regardless of what moral people they are, regardless of the kindness of the people, regardless of, of how devoted they are to whatever religion they believe, those people are perishing. They are headed toward hell. That is their home. But notice what it goes on to say. Whose mind the God of this age blinded. See, they're not the enemy. In a lot of ways, they're victims. They are under the influence, the enemy of our souls. And he has convinced them they don't need Jesus for whatever reason. They've, he's convinced them that there is another spirituality. He has convinced them of another way. He has convinced them of something. But they are deceived by him. And He will keep that hold on them as long as He can so that they will perish in hell along with Him. And while that makes it difficult, it is not hopeless. Whose mind the God of this age has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus our Lord. And ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. 
For it is God who commands the light to shine out of the darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, those people, what they need is they need to hear about Jesus. And as we tell them about Jesus, God does something. God shines the light of the gospel into their hearts and He makes them see. He makes them understand. Now, that doesn't mean they're necessarily going to turn because once God makes them see, they have a choice to make. They have to choose, am I going to turn away from all that I've always known and turn to Jesus, or am I going to stay where I am? That's the choice you made. It's the choice we made. That's the choice they'll make. Everybody makes that choice. But the key is, and and this isn't in my notes, so this doesn't count against me for time. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus. Your morals don't matter. Your political opinions don't matter. Jesus is what matters. They do not need... They don't need you to tell them who to vote for so they can be saved. They don't need you to tell them how their morality is wrong so they can be saved. They need you to tell them about Jesus. Everything has to rise and fall on Jesus. Who He is... What he did, why he's important. We do not preach ourselves and our morals and our opinions and our politics. We preach our Jesus. And as we preach Jesus, God shines the light into the darkness. And he gives them the opportunity to turn to Jesus and be saved. People involved in other religions, they are often very, very difficult to reach. But they are not impossible to reach. When we look at a Muslim, that is a soul for whom Jesus died. When Jesus said, for God so loved the world, the Muslim folks were involved. When Jesus said, for God so loved the world... The Mormons and the Jehovah's Witness were involved. When, God said for God, when Jesus said, For God so loved the world, everybody of every spirituality, of every religion, was contained in there. Jesus loves them. Jesus died for them. Jesus can absolutely save them. So as you pray and you invite, don't worry about what religion they are. I'm I'm not a Christian, I'm a Muslim. Come anyway. Come anyway. Well, I'm I'm involved in it. Come anyway. I'm really kind of a new age and God is the earth. Come anyway. Invite them confidently. Pray confidently. Jesus loves them. Jesus died for them. And Jesus can absolutely save them. Because next week we're preaching Jesus. That's what we're doing. God's going to shine in the darkness of their hearts and He's going to give them an opportunity to be saved. And if they will cooperate with His Spirit, He will save them out of their sin, out of their false religion. Be confident in this as we invite people to church. And then finally, Jesus saves and restores backsliders. I like the story of the prodigal son because I feel a kinship with that guy. You know the story, he, he lived with his father and then one day he said, Father, I, I would like my share of the inheritance now. Then he took it and he left 
And he spent all the money on, on prodigal living, the Bible says, or on riotous living in some translations. And I feel a kinship with that because I was raised in a, in a Christian home. I've joked before that we went to church whether we wanted to or not. When we were a kid, we had choices. We could go to church, we could get a whipping, and then we'd go to church. You know, if Dad said, are you sick? Yeah, throw up. If you threw up, he'd say, you feel better, let's go to church. I mean, you're just, we were going to church. Mark Lowry once said that growing up as a kid, that if the pastor was going to wash the windows, they showed up and filled their pew to watch him. That's kind of the way we were at church. I was saved. And, and I, I believe I was saved that night at that revival because I, I, I know I was. Then I joined the army. And boy, Berlin, Germany offers a 21-year-old kid a myriad of things Pickett Center, Oklahoma doesn't offer. And it didn't take long before that myriad of things was much more appealing than chapel service on Sunday morning. In fact, the first time I came home after being in the army, our pastor from the pulpit said, The prodigal son returns. Anyway, I feel a kinship with that. The prodigal son, he went and he lived his life on, on riotous living. He turned away and away from all that his dad had raised him to do and to be. There came a point where he hit rock bottom. He was feeding pigs for a Jewish guy that was bad. And he was so hungry, he desired to eat what the pigs were eating. And no one would give him even that. And in that moment of hitting rock bottom, the Bible says, But he came to himself. See, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to eat and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I really think perish with hunger. I think he was really starving to death. I'll arise and go to my father. Say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, and ran and fell to his knees, fell on his neck, and kissed him. And there's a lot about that. The father seeing him afar off. Now, I don't guess I can prove this, but in my opinion, I kind of think the father spent some time every day watching the road the boy went on to look for him to come back. But that he ran to him, we don't think much about that, but... Remember that back then they didn't wear pants like we do. They wore robe-like things. Now, I've never, I've never worn a dress, but Scott has told me that it's hard to run in a dress. <laughs> and along, when it's down around your ankles, you have to hack it up to run. For a Jewish man to hack up his robe and show his legs was kind of a shameful thing. It was, wasn't a high class thing to do, it was a low brow thing to do. For him to run, that's what he would have had to have done. See, he didn't care what people thought of what he was doing. His son was coming home. And the idea that he fell on his neck, the way I see this, because I think the son fell flat out on the ground before the dad. In order for the dad to fall on his neck, the dad had to get down in the, the muck and the mire too. I mean, that's a dad who was glad his son was home. The story goes on in the, 
the dad tells him, no, I'm not going to make you a servant. You're a son. He gives him a ring and new clothes. And he restores him back to the place where he was at before. That's a picture of, of our Heavenly Father. You know, there are, there are people who get saved and they never, they never veer and they never swerve in their love and their devotion to Jesus. They just, they just go all in and they never turn. Some people, some people let the world call them. Some people let the flesh guide them. And they make bad decisions and they turn. And sometimes those people, if you invite them to church, they'll say, Man, I think the church would fall in on me if I were to go in. And when you know those people who have turned from the Lord and feel they've gone too far, you just remember this. Their Heavenly Father, He's watching for them to come home. And when they take the first step toward Him, He runs to meet them the rest of the way. And if you're the prodigal, Oh, my friend, your father longs for you to come home today. He longs for you to, to use this opportunity to, to come to him and let him restore you to the place that you ought to be. As you go out this week and you pray, you invite and you pray, you invite those people that have fallen away. You invite those people that say they've gone too far and they've done too much. You let them know that there is a heavenly Father that loves them. He's watching for them. He wants them to be restored. You invite them confidently. You pray for them boldly. And you just keep watching and keep waiting. Jesus completely and perfectly saves everyone who believes. The life they've lived, the religion they're a part of, there is nothing, nothing that they've done that can keep them from being saved by Jesus if they will believe. So in light of this, here's what I want you to do this week. One, you think of someone you know and care for who fits one of these categories. You know a sinner. You know a backslider. You know someone involved in another religion that needs Jesus. You begin to, you, you get that person specifically in your mind. And then you begin to pray regularly for God to save them. I pray, and when I pray for God to save somebody, I don't pray for them to make the right decision. I have much more power in the saving, in God's ability to save than I do in their ability to make a right decision. Pray for God to save them. There are prayer guides out in the foyer on the table. Scripture prayers to pray for the lost. You take those and you pray those things. Invite them to church anytime. So we're always going to preach Jesus here. It's what we do. But you specifically invite them next week. We're talking about myths that make us miserable and the truth that sets us free. A myth that makes people miserable is thinking God never gives us more than we can bear. A lot of people believe that. I've heard that I don't know how many times. And it's a myth. And we're going to expose that next week. We'll look at how it makes people miserable and what the truth is that can set them free. Chances are there's someone in your sphere of influence that's a myth that makes them miserable. Invite them. And then look for opportunities to share the gospel. We are all tasked to lead people to follow Jesus. So look for opportunities to share the gospel with them.
And sharing the gospel does not have to be complicated. You don't have to answer every objection. You don't have to give ontological arguments for the existence of God. Gosh, you can share the gospel by giving your personal testimony. What has Jesus done in your life? And every believer, we ought to be able to give a testimony about what Jesus has done the drop of a hat. We ought to think through and be able to give a three to five minute testimony about what Jesus has done at the drop of a hat. And in that, you can share the gospel. Let's stand.